Chapter 4 of David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology by James Orr. Life of Hume 3 from the publication of The History Till His Death. A few events, partly personal and partly literary, which belonged to the period when Hume was occupied with his history, have still to be mentioned. Hume's skeptical opinions were well known, and in 1755-6 attempts were made at the instance of a polemical individual, the Reverend George Anderson, to bring him in conjunction with Lord Kames, under the censure of the General Assembly of the Church. Footnote. Kames' essays had really been written in opposition to Hume. End of footnote. The Assembly went so far as to pass a resolution expressive of the Church's utmost abhorrence of impious and infidel principles, and of the deepest concern on account of the prevalence of infidelity and immorality, the principles of which have been, to the disgrace of our age and nation, so openly avowed in several books published of late in this country, and which are but too well known among us. When, however, in the following year, the attack was renewed in a committee of assembly against Hume personally, the proposal to send up an overture on the subject was rejected. Footnote. The indefatigable Anderson tried afterwards to have the publishers of Lord Kames' essays arraigned before the presbytery, but died before the case came on. End of footnote. The next year, 1757, saw the publication by Mr. Miller of a volume consisting of four dissertations, which, as it turned out afterwards, had a curious and complicated history. The dissertations in question were on the natural history of religion, the passions taking the place of the corresponding book in the treatise, tragedy, and the standard of taste. Originally, it would seem, the volume was meant to include a dissertation on geometry, probably with reference to the discussions on that subject in the older work. Then, excluding geometry, it was intended to embrace, along with the first three of the above-named essays, two others on suicide and the immortality of the soul. These essays were actually printed as part of the volume, but were subsequently suppressed, and in their room was inserted, finally, the disquisition on the standard of taste. The fact of the suppression was brought to light by the unauthorized publication in 1783 of the two essays, with adverse comments by a person who had surreptitiously obtained copies of them. The motive of the suppression is sufficiently obvious from their character. One, a thoroughgoing defense of the lawfulness of suicide the other a skeptical undermining of the arguments for future life. The essay on immortality is not rendered less distasteful by its ironical allusions at the beginning and the end to the obligations of mankind to divine revelation.
The volume of dissertations cast light on Hume's mind in other ways. As originally printed, it was introduced by an affectionate dedication to John Holm, who was at the time in trouble with the church over the production of his tragedy of Douglas on the stage in Edinburgh. And Hume was persuaded to suppress this dedication, lest it should further compromise his friend's prospects. Almost immediately he repented his decision, moved probably by the knowledge that Holm intended resigning his charge at Athel Stainford. But the addition was issued, and it was only later that the dedication could be restored. Its inflated language is a characteristic illustration of Hume's curious blindness in matters of literary judgment, where personal friendship and especially anything Scottish was concerned. He thus addresses Holm, You possess the true theatric genius of Shakespeare and Otway, refined from the unhappy barbarism of the one and the licentiousness of the other. He writes to Adam Smith concerning the tragedy itself. When it shall be printed, which will be soon, I am persuaded it will be esteemed the best, and by French critics the only tragedy in the language. An instance of the like overweening estimate of the performances of his friends occurs about the same time in his extravagant appreciation of the epigoniad of the poet Wilkie. To Hume's mind, Wilkie was almost the equal of Homer. His production was the second epic poem in our language. It is certainly, he says, a most singular production, full of sublimity and genius, adorned by a noble, harmonious, forcible, and even correct versification. Footnote, Burton says, No Scotchman could write a book of respectable talent without calling forth his loud and warm elogiums. Wilkie was to be the Homer, Blacklock the Pindar, and Holm the Shakespeare, or something still greater of his country. End of footnote. This generous temper had no doubt its praiseworthy side, enabling Hume to take a disinterested delight in the literary successes even of those who stood to him more nearly in the position of rivals. He rejoiced unfeignedly in the chorus of approval which greeted the appearance of his friend, Dr. Robertson's History of Scotland, 1758, and in the welcome accord to the theory of moral sentiments of Adam Smith, 1759. He even seems for a time, though not quite unreservedly, to have yielded to belief in the genuineness of the poems of Ossian, in defense of which Dr. Hugh Blair had written a learned dissertation. Reflection soon led him to a very different judgment on this last point. There is preserved from his pen an essay on the authenticity of Ossian's poems, in which the claims of the poems to antiquity are mercilessly demolished. The essay was not published in his lifetime, but it is characteristic that he continues to write to Blair as if his mind was still in the balance on the question. From the end of 1758 till about November 1759, Hume resided in London, superintending the publication of his volumes on the Tudors, and rendering service to Dr. Robertson in seeing his history of Scotland through the press. He had even at one time, 1757, 
the thought of taking up his permanent residence in London. Edinburgh, however, was still the place most congenial to him. In 1762, as formerly mentioned, he changed his residence in that city to a house he had acquired in James Court, a large square enclosure into which one still enters by a close from the lawn market. Tall buildings surrounded the court. The house which Hume occupied was on the third story, on the northern side, and from its windows commanded a fine view of the lake in the hollow below, and of the open spaces beyond, now covered by the new town of Edinburgh, the erection of which his domicile formed part has since been replaced by the offices of what, formerly the Free Church, is now the United Free Church of Scotland. Here Hume, one in town, spent tranquil days, and amidst the whirl and gaiety of Paris, sighed, he tells us, twice or thrice a day, for the armchair and the retreat it afforded him. It is a curious fact that the house was for a time rented from Hume by James Boswell, who there received Dr. Samuel Johnson, whose antipathy to its owner was so extreme and during Hume's absence in France, it was occupied by Dr. Blair. Among the new friendships made by Hume in these years, mention should be made of two of some interest in a controversial respect. In 1761, Hume had submitted to him the sermon of Dr. Campbell of Aberdeen, afterwards enlarged into the dissertation on miracles, and in offering his criticisms, took considerable exception to some of its expressions, particularly one in which he was denominated an infidel writer. Campbell complacently toned down the offensive passages, and an interchange of complimentary letters followed, in one of which Hume gives the account formerly alluded to of how the essay on miracles originated. One paragraph from a letter to Dr. Blair in this connection deserves to be quoted as showing the terms on which Hume maintained his intimacy with his clerical friends. It is this. Having said so much to your friend, Dr. C., who is certainly a very ingenious man, though a little too zealous for a philosopher, permit me also the freedom of saying a word to yourself. Whenever I have had the pleasure to be in your company, if the discourse turned upon any common subject of literature or reasoning, I always parted from you both entertained and instructed. But when the conversation was diverted by you from this channel towards the subject of your profession, though I doubt not, but your intentions were very friendly towards me, I own I never received the same satisfaction. I was apt to be tired and you to be angry. I would therefore wish for the future whenever my good fortune throws me in your way, that these topics should be forborne between us. I have long since done with all inquiries on such subjects, and am become incapable of instruction, though I own that no one is more capable of conveying it than yourself. Two years later, 1763, Hume was brought into communication again through Dr. Blair, with another and more formidable opponent. Dr. Thomas Reed. Reed was at the time preparing his inquiry into the human mind, 
in confutation of Hume's principles. I wish, said Hume, when he heard of it, that the Parsons would confine themselves to their old occupation of worrying one another and leave philosophers to argue with temper, moderation, and good manners, an observation of which neither the temper nor the good manners is conspicuous. The perusal of the manuscript changed his opinion, and he wrote to read in warm appreciation of the deeply philosophical spirit of his work. The reply he received must have more than gratified his vanity and soothed him for any disappointment he had felt at the earlier neglect of his works. Reed wrote, In attempting to throw some new light upon these abstruse subjects, I wish to preserve the due mean betwixt confidence and despair. But whether I have any success in this attempt or not, I shall always avow myself your disciple in metaphysics. I have learned more from your writings in this kind than from all others put together. Your system appears to me not only coherent in all its parts, but likewise justly deduced from principles commonly received among philosophers, principles which I never thought of calling in question until the conclusions you draw from them in the treatise of human nature made me suspect them. If these principles are solid, your system must stand, and whether they are or not can better be judged after you have brought to light the whole system that grows out of them than when the greater part of it was wrapped up in clouds and darkness. I agree with you, therefore, that if this system shall ever be demolished, you have a just claim to a great share of the praise, both because you have made it a distinct and determinate aim to be marked at and have furnished proper artillery for the purpose. We now approach what may be termed the crowning triumph of Hume's life, the period of his French visit. Hume made no secret at any time that the French were the people he most admired. He was now to have experience of the extraordinary degree in which they admired him. The new period is led up to by a correspondence opened in 1761 with a lady of accomplishment and high social rank, the Comtesse de Boufflers who, if we may believe herself, had been transported almost beyond the power of expression by the exquisite qualities of Hume's genius. The fact that this lady held the equivocal position of mistress to the Prince of Conti seems neither to have occasioned any trouble in her own mind, nor excited any disapprobation in that of Hume. Footnote her regard for the prince he considered as really honorable and virtuous. He became her confidant and did his best to console her for her disappointment in not being made princess at her husband's death. End of footnote. In the interchange of letters that followed, Hume and the Comtesse vied with each other in the exuberance of their compliments. And if Hume escaped thinking himself a demigod or something very near it, the blame cannot be laid at the door of his fair correspondent. For instance, I know no terms capable of expressing what I felt in reading this work, the history. I was moved, transported, and the emotion which it caused in me is, in some measure, painful by its continuance. But how shall I be able to express the effect produced on me by your divine impartiality?' 
I would that I had on this occasion your own eloquence of which to express my thought. In truth, I believed I had before my eyes the work of some celestial being, free from the passions of humanity, who, for the benefit of the human race, has deigned to write the events of these latter times. Madame de Boufflers had heard that Hume had some intention of coming to Paris, and exerted all her powers of persuasion to induce him to do so. She also wrote soliciting his interest on behalf of the exiled J.J. Rousseau, in the event of that persecuted man seeking an asylum in England. We shall see what came of that request afterwards. Meanwhile, the way for the visit to Paris was opened up in an unexpected manner. In the middle of 1763, Hume received an invitation from the Marquis of Hertford, ambassador to the court of France, to accompany him in the capacity of acting secretary. No offer could be more flattering to Hume or more agreeable to his inclinations and its material advantages, the settlement upon him of a pension of 200 pounds per life, with the near prospect of becoming full secretary to the embassy at 1,000 pounds a year, were very great. His first impulse was to decline, but bethinking himself, as he instructively says, that I had in a manner abjured all literary occupations, that I resolved to give up my future life entirely to amusements, that there could not be a better pastime than such a journey, especially with a man of Lord Hertford's character. Footnote. The official secretary was one Sir Charles Bunbury, an incapable man, whom Hertford refused to have with him. End of footnote. He decided to accept, and in August 1763, he set out for London, arriving in Paris with the embassy on the 14th of October following. It would be unprofitable to dwell on the details of Hume's residence in France during the next two years, and only general features need to be sketched. His welcome in that country exceeded all expectations. Lord Elibank, writing from Paris on 11th May, 1763, had said to him, No author ever yet attained to that degree of reputation in his own lifetime that you are now in possession of at Paris. And Hume found that this statement was no exaggeration. His connection with Hertford opened to him the circles of highest distinction at court. His literary celebrity was an even surer passport to the brilliant society of the Salons. On all sides, he was feted, flattered, honored, was smothered in compliments by the ladies, was extolled among the literati as a genius of transcendent merit. A paragraph or two from his letters will suffice an illustration of his reception at Paris and at Fontainebleau. I have been three days at Paris and two at Fontainebleau, he said, and have everywhere met with the most extraordinary honors, which the most exorbitant vanity could wish or desire. The compliments of dukes and marechals of France and the foreign ambassadors go for nothing with me at present. I retain a relish of no kind of flattery but that which comes from the ladies. To Adam Smith. I have now passed four days at Paris and about a fortnight in the court of Fontainebleau. 
amidst a people who, from the royal family downwards, seems to have it much at heart to persuade me, by every expression of esteem, that they consider me one of the greatest geniuses in the world. I am convinced that Louis the Fourteenth, never, in any three weeks of his life, suffered so much flattery. I say suffered, for it really confounds and embarrasses me, and makes me look sheepish. To Professor Ferguson, Do you ask me about my course of life? I can only say that I eat nothing but ambrosia, drink nothing but nectar, breathe nothing but incense, and tread on nothing but flowers. Every man I meet, and still more every lady, would think they were wanting in the most indispensable duty if they did not make a long and elaborate harangue in my praise. To Dr. Robertson, France, gay, corrupt, and unbelieving, was hastening to its inevitable doom of twenty-five years later, but Hume seems to have had not the remotest inkling of the fact. What he did see was a charmingly cultivated and polite people, wholly possessed by a rage for letters. In the halls of the great and at the supper tables of the ladies, who presided nightly over their respective coteries of wits and philosophers, Hume soon made the acquaintance of most of the men of distinction of the day, of D'Alembert, Turgot, Helvetius, Marmontel, Buffon, Diderot, and a host of others, and was lionized by all to the top of his bent. It is to the credit of the good sense of Hume that this excess of flattery did not altogether spoil him. It would be foolish to say that it was not agreeable to him. It amused him and gratified his vanity. He could not help contrasting it with the coldness of his reception at home. At the bottom of his mind, perhaps, he did not disdain the thought that he deserved it. But his letters give abundant evidence that he did not lose his head over it. He constantly protests that it made little difference to his happiness, that the excess of it palled upon him, that he longed to escape from it to the quiet of his old life. I am sensible, he writes to Ferguson, in a passage formerly alluded to, that I set out too late, and that I am misplaced, and I wish, twice or thrice a day, for my easy chair and my retreat in James's court. Never think, dear Ferguson, that as long as you are master of your own fireside and your own time, you can be unhappy, or that any other circumstance can make an addition to your enjoyment. But this, too, was a mood, and on the whole, it must be pronounced that Hume thoroughly enjoyed his life at Paris, got so used to it indeed, that it became a question with him whether he could ever part with it. Many anecdotes, naturally, cluster around this period when Hume was, as Walpole maliciously called him, the mode in fashionable and literary circles in the French capital. Hume himself tells that as society got more familiar with him, it found in him a source of some amusement. They now begin to banter me, he says, and tell droll stories of me, which they have either observed themselves or have heard from others. This was inevitable, for neither in personal appearance nor in address could Hume ever be aught but a contrast to the gay, frivolous company in which he mingled. 
No lady's toilette, Lord Charlemont sarcastically tells us, was complete without Hume's attendance. At the opera, his broad, unmeaning face was usually seen entre deux jolies minois. It is an amusing picture which Madame Depinay has given of his appearance in his role of sultan in an acted tableau at a fashionable evening entertainment. Seated on a sofa between two of the loveliest women of Paris, he is supposed to be demonstrating his affections to two slaves who turn a deaf ear to his protestations. But during a quarter of an hour, he can think of nothing better to do than fixing his gaze upon the beauties, to beat upon his knees and stomach, and keep repeating, AVM, mesdemoiselles, ABN, vous voilà donc, ABN, vous voilà, vous voilà ici. One of the ladies at length bounces off in her impatience, exclaiming, C'est homme bon, que manager de vous. This man is only fit to eat veal. Of a different stamp is the story told to Sir Samuel Romilly by Diderot of a dinner at Baron de Holbach's. There was a large company, and the conversation turned on natural religion. As for atheists, said Hume, I don't believe that they exist. I never saw one. You have been a little unfortunate, replied his host. You are here at table for the first time with seventeen of them. Hume's position in the embassy, as already seen, was that of acting secretary, while another, Sir Charles Bunbury, held the title to the office, and drew his emoluments in London. This was manifestly an unfair arrangement, and Hume's patron and Hume himself were alike anxious to have the office and its rewards transferred to the person who really did the work. Hume was concerned also lest, in the rapid changes of political parties in England, he should find the life pension that had been promised him suddenly vanishing. In letters to Sir Gilbert Elliot of Minto and other acquaintances, he solicits, at Lord Hertford's instigation, the influence on his behalf, though he intimates that he is doubtful of success. The matter, however, happily arranged itself in the end through the transference of Sir Charles Bunbury to the post for which he was equally unqualified, of Secretary for Ireland when, by the aid of friends among whom Madame de Boufleurs is to be named, Hume was, June 1765, made secretary to the embassy, with a salary of £1,200 a year. But his ambition in this respect had scarcely been realized when a new change took place. Lord Hertford was recalled to fill the high office of Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and Hume was left for the time as chargé d'affaires in Paris. The duties of that responsible position he discharged with assiduity and ability till near the close of the year. Lord Hertford's original design had been to take Hume with him to Ireland. This he did not accomplish, but he succeeded in obtaining for him the comfortable pension of £400 a year for life. Thus, at the conclusion of his two and a half years sojourn in Paris, our philosopher was, if not rich, at least in possession of a very substantial income. A piece of correspondence which belongs to this Parisian period cannot here be passed over, 
though the light it throws on Hume's principles of conduct is anything but a pleasant one. It is his reply to the letter of Colonel Edmundstone, asking with regard to a young man who is a sort of disciple of Hume's own, whether it would be legitimate for him to take orders as a clergyman of the Church of England. You'll determine, the writer says, whether a man of probity can accept of a living, a bishopric that does not believe all the 39 articles, for you only can fix him. He has been hitherto irresolute. Hume's answer gives us a glimpse into his own mind. It is putting too great a respect on the vulgar and on their superstitions to pique oneself on sincerity with regard to them. Did ever anyone make it a point of honor to speak the truth to children or madmen? If the thing were worthy being treated gravely, I should tell him that the Pinthian oracle, with the approbation of Xenophon, advised everyone to worship the gods. Nomopolios. I wish it were still in my power to be a hypocrite in this particular. The common duties of society usually require it, and the ecclesiastical profession only adds a little more to an innocent dissimulation, or rather simulation, without which it is impossible to pass through the world. Am I a liar? because I order my servant to say, I am not at home, when I do not desire to see company. To this, then, Hume's philosophy brings us, deliberate falsehood and hypocrisy in the holiest region of our lives. The story of this part of Hume's career may be briefly completed, after many fluctuations of purpose as to the place of his abode. He returned to England with Rousseau, of whom more anon, in January 1766. He remained in London till midsummer, then went north to Edinburgh, but had not been many months there when he was honoured with a fresh invitation to become Under-Secretary of State for Scotland, there being at the time no principal secretary. Early in 1767, accordingly, we find him again in London, installed in this secretarial office, whose duties he continued to discharge till 20th July, 1768. In the following year, he came back to Edinburgh, re-establishing himself in his domicile in James's court. His own account is, I returned to Edinburgh in 1769, very opulent, for I possessed a revenue of £1,000 a year, and though somewhat stricken in years, he was 58 years of age with the prospect of enjoying long my ease and of seeing the increase of my reputation. Strange how this note of his reputation is invariably the dominant one. A little must now be said of an episode which perhaps stirred Hume more deeply than any other experience in his life. His famous quarrel with the eccentric and only half-responsible Swiss genius and sentimentalist Jean-Jacques Rousseau There is nothing in this episode but what redounds to Hume's credit and kindness of heart, but it reveals what other instances also discover, how much passion and vehemence of resentment when his amour propre was touched lurked beneath our philosopher's ordinarily placid demeanor. Footnote. His biographer remarks on an earlier correspondence 
with Lord Elibank that it shows that he was by no means exempt from the passion of anger, and that when, under its influence, he was liable to be harsh and unreasonable, and refutes the general notion formed of his character, viz., that he passed through life unmoved and immovable, a placid mass of breathing flesh, on which the ordinary impulses which rouse the human passions into life might expend themselves in vain. Hume, in fact, could be aroused to an astonishing strength of indignation when either his person or opinions received what he regarded as injustice. End of footnote. Reference was made above to a letter of the Comtesse de Berfleurs in 1762, recommending Rousseau to Hume's good offices, should he come to England. Letters from the exiled Earl Marischal of Scotland, then governor of Neuchâtel, bore on the same subject. The facts, briefly, were that Rousseau, who had been living peacefully at Montmorency, under the protection of his friends, the Duke and Duchess of Luxembourg, had been compelled in 1762 by the storm of persecution which broke out on the publication of his Emile to flee the kingdom of France and take refuge in Switzerland. He found an asylum at Neuchâtel, then under Prussian sovereignty, but his friends thought it wiser that he should seek refuge in England. Hume warmly interested himself in the project, assuring Madame de Boufleurs that there is no man in Europe of whom I have entertained a higher idea and whom I would be prouder to serve. Rousseau's pride, however, prevented him from receiving the preferred favors, and he continued to reside at various retreats in Switzerland, persecuted by priests and populace, and made miserable by his own self-tormenting disposition until October 1765, when he left for Strasbourg, and in December, at Hume's invitation, found his way to Paris. In all these wanderings, he was accompanied by his coarse-natured mistress, Teresa La Vassille. With genuine goodness of heart, Hume took him in hand, had him provided for by the Prince of Conti, and, as we have seen, brought him with himself to England in January 1766. He could not be unobservant of Rousseau's peculiar humors, but then, and for months afterwards, he entertained the highest opinion of the strange being, with whose fame Europe at the time was ringing. My companion, he writes on 19th January, is very amiable, always polite, gay often, commonly sociable. I love him very much and hope that I may have some share in his affections. And on 2nd February, he is a very modest, mild, well-bred, gentle-spirited, and warm-hearted man, as ever I knew in my life. He is also to appearance very sociable. I never saw a man who seems better calculated for good company, nor who seems to take more pleasure in it. Hume kept him at his house in London, obtained for him from the king the promise of a pension of £100 a year and not to delight on other kindnesses, as Rousseau seemed bent on a life of solitude, finally arranged for his being established in the charmingly situated country mansion of Wooten, in Derbyshire, the property of a Mr. Davenport, who took a warm interest in the fortunes of the wanderer. 
to soothe Rousseau's susceptibilities, Mr. Davenport agreed to accept 30 pounds a year for board. All this, however, was in vain, so far as the securing of Rousseau's happiness was concerned. It was the misfortune of this singularly constituted individual that, as one has said, he had an utter incapacity for establishing healthy relations with one single human being, and his morbid sensibility, egoistic jealousy, and passionate craving for a notoriety which he continually affected to denounce, made him the victim of perpetual suspicions and delusions. He coquetted with the proposed pension from the king, and appeared to refuse it. Then in answer to a letter of Hume on the subject, amazed that philosopher by an epistle, 23rd June, in which he flatly accused Hume of being engaged. All the while he was professing friendship, of deep designs against his honor, and broke off further correspondence with him. Hume replied in not unnatural heat, demanding an explanation of these extraordinary charges. This solicited, in three weeks' time, an enormous letter, 35 pages of print, in which Rousseau, in the form of a continuous narrative, piles up, with no better a foundation than his own diseased imaginations, the supposed proof of Hume's wicked conspiracies against him since their relations began. It would be profitless to enter into the details of charges so ridiculous. The occasion of the whole was a silly satire on Rousseau, which Sir Robert Walpole had set abroad in Paris in form of a letter from Frederick of Prussia, by which Rousseau's vanity was deeply wounded. He at first thought the insult was by Voltaire, when he discovered Walpole's share in the jest. He immediately suspected Hume of being privy to it. This suspicion once planted in his mind. He found confirmations of it in every word, act, and look of Hume's. Even those in which Hume was most his friend. Hume was not less shocked at the discovery. He supposed he had made of the baseness and ingratitude of one for whom he had done so much. And, not content with repelling Rousseau's own attacks, wrote freely on the subject to his friends in Scotland and France. He declares to Blair that Rousseau is surely the blackest and most atrocious villain, beyond comparison, that now exists in the world, and I am heartily ashamed of anything I ever wrote in his favor. His letters to Baron Dolbach, to D'Alembert, to Madame du Beaufleur's, and others in Paris, are couched in the same indignant and vindicatory strain. Surely, he says to the Abbe de Blanc, Never was there so much wickedness and madness combined in one human creature. In all this, Hume did not exhibit his usual self-restraint. He was even moved, though Rousseau had published nothing, to give to the world an expose of the whole quarrel, and this, with accompanying documents, was published first in French, then in English. It need only be added that in April 1767, Rousseau voluntarily fled with Mademoiselle de Verseur from his retreat at Wooden, leaving about thirty pounds with his baggage in Mr. Davenport's possession. He betook himself to Paris, where he had an unfriendly reception, and he seems afterwards to have regretted his foolish behavior. 
Hume also is known to have exerted himself in 1767 to protect him from the French government. We gather from a letter of Mr. Davenport's that Rousseau's pension was continued to him. This gentleman's kind forbearance to the unhappy exile is one of the relieving features of a sordid story. The short remaining period of Hume's life, the quiet evening of his days, was spent in Edinburgh with scarcely any stronger excitement than that afforded by literary occupations and the society of congenial friends. In 1771, the house in James's court was exchanged for one more suitable to his enlarged means, built at the corner of what is now St. David Street in the new part of the city. The name of the street originated, it is well known, from the wit of a young lady who chalked the words on the walls of Hume's habitation. Hume took the jest in good part, remarking to the servant girl who ran in, much excited, to tell him what had been done. Never mind, Lassie, many a better man has been made a saint of before. The desire for further travel or change seems absolutely to have deserted him once he was ensconced in his old quarters. I have been settled here two months, he writes in 1769, and am here body and soul without casting the least thought of regret to London or even to Paris. The English he had always cordially disliked, and his feelings towards them in these last years seemed to acquire a character of ever-deepening antipathy. What repelled him was the scorn and contempt of the English for the Scots and for things Scotch. He had written earlier, 1765, to Millar, one of many similar abolitions. The rage and prejudice of parties frighten me. Above all, this rage against the Scots, which is so dishonorable and indeed so infamous to the English nation. We hear that it increases every day without the least appearance of provocation on our part. Now we find him denouncing to Sir Gilbert Elliot the daily and hourly progress of madness and folly and wickedness in England, and declaring our government has become a chimera and is too perfect in point of liberty, but so rude a beast as an Englishman, who is a man, a bad animal too, corrupted by above a century of licentiousness. The only literary work in which he indulged himself besides correspondence was the continued revision of his former works, and this again as regards the history, meant chiefly, as we saw, the purging out of remaining traces of Whiggism. Thus, to Eliot, I am running over again the last edition of my history in order to correct it still further. I either soften or expunge many villainous, seditious Whig strokes which had crept into it. I am sensible that the first editions were too full of those foolish English prejudices which all nations and all ages disavow. The social life of Edinburgh in which Hume participated was such as had many charms for a man of his genial disposition and literary and philosophic tastes. His habits were simple, and his circumstances sufficiently affluent to raise him above all worldly cares. He had obtained the fame which was his chief object in life, and he was welcomed as visitor or friend in the best society. 
His intimate associates were men of liberal, cultivated mind, and the conversation at supper table, in the philosophical gathering, or at the more convivial club, was sure to be enlivened by abundance of anecdote, witty repartee, or criticism of what was newest in politics or letters. Free from the faintest taint of religious feeling himself, he had no sympathy with fanaticism and enthusiasm in others, and could rely on finding this element absolutely excluded from the eminently rational circles in which he moved. With a Blair and a Robertson, it was a condition of his intercourse that the subject of religion should not be obtruded. With more jovial spirits like Carlyle of Inverness, he could have little fear that it would ever be introduced, save by way of jest. In the calm, philosophic heights to which it was relegated by a Ferguson or an Adam Smith, it could not affect him much either one way or another. Yet it is the testimony of everyone who knew him that Hume never wantonly or inconsiderately wounded the religious susceptibilities of others by untimely airing of his own skeptical opinions. His amiable social qualities, on the other hand, are universally extolled. He was, his friends unite in telling us, simple, natural, and playful, unaffected in manner, and kindly in disposition, charitable to those in need, pleasing and instructive in his conversation alike to young and old. His mother's epithet, good-natured, clung to him to the last, whatever might be said of the wake-mindedness. His own description of his character in his life is, it will perhaps be felt, as good as any. I was, I say, a man of mild disposition, a command of temper, of an open social and cheerful humor, capable of attachment, but little susceptible of enmity, and of great moderation in all my passions. Even my love of literary fame, my ruling passion, never soured my temper, notwithstanding my frequent disappointments. My company was not unacceptable to the young and careless, as well as to the studious and literary. And as I took a particular pleasure in the company of modest women, I had no reason to be displeased with the reception I met with from them. Yet in the whole picture which Hume draws of himself, it is remarkable that he does not acknowledge or hint at a single fault. The sketch is self-complacency throughout. The letters of this closing period would seem to indicate that in his last years, Hume's thought and conversation turned a good deal on politics, and that his wide connection with public men and public affairs furnished him with a store of anecdote and reminiscence on which he was never unwilling to draw. It is worth observing that, with all his Tory leanings, Hume was from the first opposed to the American War and foresaw its disastrous results. His views are indicated in various letters, but may perhaps best be inferred, per oppositum, from the following letter, in reply to one of his from Mr. Strahan, his printer, which is, in its own way, a gem of unwisdom. Mr. Strahan says, I differ from you, Toto Silo, with regard to America. I am entirely for coercive methods 
with those obstinate and bad men. And why should we despair of success? Why should we suffer the empire to be so dismembered without the utmost exertions on our part? I see nothing so very formidable in this business. If we become a little more unanimous and could stop the months of domestic traders from whence the evil originated, not that I wish to enslave the colonists or to make them one jot less happy than ourselves, but I am for keeping them subordinate to the British legislature and their trade to a reasonable degree, subservient to the interest of the mother country, but which we must inevitably lose if they are emancipated, as you propose. I am very surprised you are of a different opinion. Very true. Things look oddly at present, and the dispute hath hitherto been very ill-managed. But so we always do at the commencement of every war. So we did most remarkably in the last. But so soon as the British lion is roused, we never fail to fetch up our leeway, as the sailors say. And so I hope you will find it in this important case. In the spring of 1775, Hume experienced the first symptoms of that internal disorder, a hemorrhage of the bowels, which had its fatal termination in the course of the following year. At first, the distemper created little alarm, but its persistence and increasing gravity soon marked it as likely to be incurable. By the commencement of 1776, Hume found that he had fallen off five complete stones in weight. His cheerfulness continued unabated, and his letters to Gibbon and Adam Smith show the lively interest excited in his mind by the publication of the decline in the fall of the one and the wealth of nations of the other. The serious state of his health led him on 4th January to execute a settlement in which, besides the provisions for the disposal of his estate, he made careful arrangements for the publication of his dialogues on natural religion, hitherto, by the urgency of his friends, withheld from the press. The bulk of his fortune he left to his brother, and after him to his nephew David. His sister was to receive twelve hundred pounds. Among his legacies was one to D'Alembert of two hundred pounds, and another of the same sum to Adam Ferguson. Adam Smith was appointed his literary executor, and on him was laid the injunction of publishing the formidable dialogues. Difficulties, however, arose on this point. Dr. Blair, Sir Gilbert Elliot, and Smith himself were strongly opposed to the publication of this work, which struck, as they regarded it, at the foundations of theism, and the last must have plainly indicated to Hume his unwillingness to take the responsibility laid upon him. Hume was as firmly resolved that the dialogue should see the light, and, while in a qualifying letter to Smith of 3rd May, he left it to his discretion to publish or not as he saw fit. He soon after, in a codicil to his will, 7th August, altered the disposition he had made and left his manuscripts to the care of Mr. William Strahan, trusting to the friendship that has long subsisted between us for his careful and faithful execution of my intentions. He desired that the dialogues might be printed and published any time within two years after his death, and failing this, he ordained, 
that the property should return to his nephew David, whose duty in publishing them, as the last request of his uncle, must be approved by all the world. In point of fact, the duty was declined by Strahan, as by the others, and the dialogues were only at length published in accordance with Hume's wishes by his nephew in 1779. In April 1776, Hume wrote the sketch of his own life, which has been frequently referred to, and directions were left that it should be prefixed to any future edition of his works. The end was now drawing sensibly near, a journey which Hume undertook in April and May at the desire of his friends to London and Bath, though marked by gleams of hope, failed of any lasting good effect, and in the beginning of June, he returned to Edinburgh, consciously to take leave of his friends and of the world. The prospect filled him with no alarm. If he cherished no religious hopes, it must be confessed that he had schooled his mind into a skepticism which seemed to enable him to dispense with them. He spoke of his approaching end with calmness and even playfulness. He maintained his usual unaffected cheerfulness in company. He uttered no repining at a departure which, he reasoned, only cut off a few years of infirmities. In his own last words, in his life, one finds the old note of his literary reputation still uppermost. Though I see, he says, many symptoms of my literary reputations breaking out at last with additional luster. I knew that I could have but few years to enjoy it. His friends, who were unremitting in their devotion to him, overflow in their admiration and astonishment at the composure, the imperturbability, the cheerfulness, the gaiety even, as in his jesting about Charon and his boat, with which he met the dread event of death, to most so sad and solemn. He is to them the very ideal of the sage, and so indeed he would be, if the foundations on which his philosophic indifference rested were sound, if human life had indeed no higher meaning, no weightier responsibilities, no more earnest purpose, no more awful issues than he supposed. But that if makes all the difference in our sense of the fitness of things in the way of quitting life. Hume died on the Sunday, 25th, August, 1776, in such a happy composure of mind, says his physician, that nothing could exceed it. He was buried amidst abundant manifestations of the public interest, friendly and hostile, evoked by his person and opinions, in the young graveyard on Calton Hill, then in the open country, and above his remains was reared the circular monument still to be seen, on which is inscribed by his express directions only the simple words, David Hume, with the years of his birth and death, leaving it, as he significantly says in his will, to posterity to add the rest. End of chapter 4